0: Well, let me just recap for you where this part of Revelation has come with regards to the vision. This, this section of Revelation starts in chapter 19, verse 11. And it moves on through really the end of chapter 21. In this part of the vision, some of this we covered last week, we had the triumphant return of Jesus. We had the, the gathering for the battle, the great battle. Likely the battle in Armageddon, right? That we call that Armageddon. That battle with, with the beast and the false prophet leading the world in rebellion against Jesus. And we saw, remember there were two feasts, the marriage feast of the Lamb, but then there was that other feast, right? That the birds were going to feast on the flesh of the kings and the great and small who rebelled against Jesus. And so, of course, that, that feast came to reality as Jesus and his army, they were victorious over the beast and the prophet. Remember, the beast and the false prophet were thrown then into the lake of fire. After that, we come to chapter 20, where we have an angel who appears from heaven, and the angel comes down with the key to the abyss. We may have met this angel already in the book of Revelation, but he also has a chain, and he puts a chain around Satan, the dragon, and he binds him, and he throws him into the abyss. At that point, there are a thousand years where Jesus reigns in what we call the millennial kingdom. Millennial meaning a thousand, right? This millennial kingdom, and he reigns with believers who have been resurrected At the end of that time frame, Satan is released in the vision from the abyss. He leads one final rebellion against Jesus and he is decisively defeated and he is cast into the lake of fire with the beast and the false prophet and later to be joined by all unbelievers. The point here is very clear. Evil has been defeated and divine justice has finally come to earth. That's where this vision focuses us. It is really the climax of our struggle with Satan and his agenda, and it focuses on the victory that God will have over Satan in the end. You got to remember that the battle between God and Satan is not a struggle in the sense like it's even Stephen and we don't know who's going to win. It's not even an issue of who's going to win. It's really just a matter of when does God choose to finally deal with Satan forever, and we look forward to that day coming. So this vision orients us towards that ultimate victory. We need to know that that day is coming. Why? Because frankly, it's hard today. It's hard with the trials and temptations that we face to stay faithful to Jesus, to say no to the devil and his deception. We live in a day where sometimes crimes go unpunished. There's no justice. We live in a day when sometimes diseases can't be cured. We live in a day when governments fail us we live in a day when sometimes wars drag on when they shouldn't have started in the first place we live in a day where there's significant challenges in our families there's difficulties that we face as a culture there's so much temptation and so sometimes we just need to be reminded that in the end satan loses in the end satan loses Now, the millennial kingdom that's described here, and it's really just described in six verses in Revelation chapter 20, it is one of the most debated topics in Christianity. Can I just tell you, these six verses, there's there's more uh, difference of opinion over these six verses than over many other issues that we find in the Bible, even though these are the only six verses in the Bible that are explicitly about the millennial kingdom. There's disagreement, maybe some others are, maybe some aren't, we can talk about that another day. But the fact is, there's a lot of disagreement about this. Really, there's, there's actually two main views. And I want to introduce you to these two views this morning. But I just want to clarify at the outset that both of these views, or neither of these views, uh, affects the gospel, the teaching of the gospel. They are two, I think, uh, legitimate ways of interpreting what's read in Revelation 20. I have a preferred view. Our church would have a, a historically a preferred view that I'll explain in a minute But just because we don't share that view doesn't mean that these other folks aren't believers, okay? So there are some essential truths in the Christian faith that you must hold to to be a believer. And your take on the millennial reign of Christ is not one of those, we would say. One take on the millennial reign of Christ holds that chapters 19 and 20 are not in chronological order. So they basically separate chapter 19 from chapter 20. And what we read about in chapter 20 is a visionary representation of the church age. They would say that Satan uh, has been bound in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus. His authority is now less than it was before Jesus' death and resurrection. And therefore, God's uh, kingdom is actually has actually come. And we, uh, the church, are in a sense reigning now as the church grows and as uh, we make mature disciples of Jesus. This view is sometimes called amillennialism because... I mean, the, the name is, there's no millennium, but that's not what it teaches. It's a misnomer. The, the idea is that we are currently in the millennium right now, that it's happening right now. And while I don't hold to this view, those who hold to this view are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we should love them well and should not challenge them to duels over this view, okay? The sec- and I'll, I'll talk more about it as we go through the, the verses here. The second uh, take on the millennial kingdom is that the millennial kingdom here stands for a real kingdom that Jesus will set up on earth after his return. So that view takes chapters 19 and 20 to be in chronological order in the vision. Because Jesus will return before his kingdom comes, uh, before this millennial kingdom comes, this view is sometimes called pre-millennialism. That Jesus comes before the millennial reign. Those are basically the two views. There are some uh, variations on both. In both views, the main point is clear. The church today needs encouragement to follow the lamb because his kingdom is coming, okay? And as we'll see, the views are in absolute agreement as to what happens at the end of the millennial kingdom and beyond. So the difference of understanding of how this correlates with the rest of scripture is a challenge, but it doesn't change the main point, all right? We need encouragement today to follow the lamb because Jesus' kingdom is coming, and that kingdom entails the defeat of Satan and all who stand with him. So we're all in agreement on that. Now let's take a look at the, at the specifics here and unpack it. And hopefully we'll find some encouragement as we look at this, at this aspect of the vision in Revelation. Chapter 20 again, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Now, if we pause here, it's just so interesting, because so often we think of Satan as like the most powerful angel or something like that. But you just want to note that in this vision, Satan is not more powerful than other angels. And so God here ordains that one of his angels... And again, we've met this angel before. He has the key to the abyss. The abyss is the abode of demons, of I think the unbelievers who have died and are are already dead. And so it's the place where the demon locusts came out of earlier in Revelation that we read about. So it's, you don't, listen, you don't want to hang out in the abyss. Okay? It's not a place you want to be. Well, there's an angel who has authority over the abyss. And one day, God says, take Satan, bind him, and throw him in there. Throw him in the can and put a lid on it. And that's exactly what we read about in the vision. That's what the angel does. So he binds Satan, which God ordained it. So Satan can't get out of it. He can't thwart this angel's task. He can't undo it. So he is bound and he's put into the abyss. And there's a seal put on it, the lid. The lid is put on the can, okay? The lid's put on it. And why? Verse 3, so that he could no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. Now, I want to just highlight that. That purpose of this binding of Satan, that he can't and won't deceive the nations anymore. The fact is, since Genesis 3, Satan has been deceiving the nations. He's been lying to people. In Revelation 12 verse 9, in Revelation 13 verse 14, in Revelation 18 verse 23, this ongoing work of Satan as being the deceiver, right, is referenced. He's he's known as the deceiver. And I think this deceiving is still going on today. And I think that's one of the reasons why we would say that this does not describe uh, the whole church age. Because Satan is quite active today, deceiving the nations. You remember in 1 Peter 5, Satan is described as a, a lion you know, ro- roaming the earth, seeking people to devour, right? So he's active today. But this day, he won't be active. He'll be bound so that the nations will no longer be deceived. Think about that for a second. No more accusing. Satan accusing you before the Lord. Look at how they failed. No more deceiving. No more lying, twisting, distorting the word of God as Satan did with Eve. No more raging against the church. Of course, in Revelation, that's been Satan's main role. Since he was cast out of heaven, he's been raging against the church. No more raging against the church. The fact is, his kingdom is coming, and when Jesus' kingdom comes... It means Satan's days are numbered. That's it. His kingdom is coming, and Satan's days are numbered. Again, no more accusing, no more deceiving, no more raging against the church. Now, the challenge we face today in our approach to Satan is, I think, threefold at least. First, in our culture, let's just be honest about it. Our culture doesn't believe Satan is real. Satan is a character in what they would call Christian mythology. He's like Thanos in the Marvel movies. He's like a fictionalized bad guy, right? And so in our culture, maybe the first thing we need to be careful of is denying the existence of Satan. Satan is real, and he he does have a mission to rage against the church. He's in rebellion against the Lord, and he wants to lead people in that rebellion. So be careful. Don't deny Satan's existence, right? He is very real. But secondly... Don't be intimidated by Satan. Don't be intimidated by Satan. Now, this is interesting because I think there's some cases where we might say, oh yeah, we believe Satan is real, and then like we really focus a lot in some expressions of Christianity. We really focus a lot on Satan, and like Satan is like, he's, he's, he's constantly, you know, this epic threat to you, and he could do all these bad things, and Satan is real, and he is a threat on the one hand. On the other hand, we don't have to be afraid of Satan, and I would just remind you, as we've said in weeks, of the pa- in weeks past, about the way Satan uh, and demons interact with Jesus in the Gospels. Do you remember when Satan and demons interact with Jesus in the Gospels? Of course, Satan leads Jesus into the wilderness to tempt him. And Jesus um, puts him in his place. I don't know how else to say it. He does his best to try to derail the mission of the Messiah. And Jesus says, nope. He answers him with the word of God. He says no to those temptations. It's awesome, right? Satan, he's a loser. And he loses. But you also see demons, those associated with Satan, those other spirits in rebellion against the Father. And whenever they see Jesus, what are they doing? They're quaking in their demonic boots. That's what they're doing, right? We know who you are. Leave us alone. Throw us into those pigs. Ah! Like that's their response. They panic. Why? Because they have nothing on Jesus. So don't be intimidated by Satan. Again, I think sometimes Hollywood, you know, it messes us up in our theology sometimes. We have maybe over, uh, emphasized the power and authority of Satan. Again, he is raging against the church, and he does deceive, but don't be intimidated by him. Because of the gospel, we don't have to fall into that trap of believing his lies or giving in to his temptation, which leads to, I think, the third challenge for us today. So don't deny Satan's existence. Don't be intimidated by Satan, and don't follow Satan. Don't follow Satan. Now listen. We did a survey, and it turns out if the sign in front of the church said Green Pond Church of Satan, there wouldn't be as many people attending, right? Because nobody's going around today, or very few people are going around looking for the Church of Satan in which to worship. But the fact is, Satan's smart, and so in our culture, he has disguised his deception. So if you're looking for uh, an angel with with horns and a tail and a red pitchfork, Okay, just you're not going to see that. Satan is going to make his message palatable to us and attractive to us through subtlety, through questioning the word of God, through cultural influence. And so the issue in Revelation has been say no to the beast. Don't take the mark, don't believe the false prophet, don't follow the dragon, right? That's been kind of this this persistent message to the churches. Be careful, be aware of, of what's going on around you, watch out for idolatry, watch out especially when you're not feeling threatened, because Satan will try to influence you in ways that you're not aware of. Of course, we know from the rest of Scripture that the spiritual warfare we face is a battle for what we believe. It's about what do you know and what do you believe about God? And so Satan's going to attack your heart through your mind. And so there's even this, this, this genius movie's he's made about convincing our world he doesn't exist, our culture he doesn't exist. He's already one step ahead in that sense. So yes, yeah, Satan exists, and he's trying to trick you to believe something that's false. Don't deny his existence, but don't be intimidated by him, and certainly don't follow him. Say no. Why? What we see in the vision here, Satan, his, his days are numbered. Now, what about the church? Well, verse 4, we, we find out what's going on with the church, during this millennial kingdom. It says in verse 4. Then I saw thrones. And people seated on them. Who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those. Who had been beheaded. Because of their testimony about Jesus. And because of the word of God. Who had not worshipped the beast or his image. And who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life. And reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So if you just pause there at verse 4. Verse 4. The thrones are either for uh, the disciples or they're for other saints who are in leadership with Jesus during this time that he's reigning on earth. And so you have these thrones. Now, we don't know exactly where they are or what's going on, but that's kind of beside the point. The point is, those that are reigning with Christ are believers. All believers. There's emphasis put here on the fact that some believers will have to give their lives to stay faithful to the Lamb. I just want to say that again. Some believers will have to give their lives to stay faithful to the Lamb. So this word for beheading is one of the ways that Romans executed people in the first century. It wasn't the only way, but it was one of the ways. Beheading by an axe. So maybe there are believers who had given their heads in the Roman Empire because of their faith. They took heat and were imprisoned because of the word of God. But one way or another, they didn't worship the beast. They refused to give in to that temptation. They didn't say yes to idolatry. They said yes to Jesus. They submitted to him. They humbled themselves. They followed him. Even when they took heat with their family, even when they took heat in the culture, they said, no, we're staying with the lamb. And some of them died. But the point is, as we've seen over and over in Revelation, that when they died for their faith, they didn't lose. They won. And here, that victory is actually visibly manifested as they reign in resurrection with Jesus. Reigning over this earth. It's vindicating their faith in Jesus, even though the world may have thought they lost. Note verse 5. There's only believers are resurrected at this time. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. And by the way, that's the one you want to be a part of. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now those who hold to the amillennial position, they would say that this resurrection is the spiritual resurrection, and the second is the literal resurrection. But in the vision, that's not kind of how it's laid out. It's laid out that the believers are resurrected in the first resurrection and unbelievers in the second resurrection. So it's two different ways of understanding the resurrections there. One way or another, what we see here is there's blessing for those who participate in the first resurrection, for all believers. There's blessing and there's a future of reigning with Jesus. His kingdom is coming. And make no mistake, those who stand with the Lamb in life will reign with the Lamb forever. Those who stand with the Lamb in life will reign with the Lamb this reigning of the saints with the Messiah is not new. It's described in Daniel chapter 7. It's described in Matthew 19. It's described in 1 Corinthians 6. Okay, It's not new information in the scriptures. That, that The idea that believers will reign with the Messiah forever. But the emphasis here is on the faithful witness of those who have to really give their lives. And they will reign with Jesus and function as priests forever. What about you? I mean, that's what this part of the vision is designed to do. It's designed to, it's designed to probe the question in you to say, hold on a second. Am I being faithful to the Lamb? Am I being faithful to the Word of God? Or have I been influenced? Am I worshiping the beast? Have I been deceived? Am I a priest even today? You know, a priest is someone who serves God. That's their job. That's their vocation, right? Right? All believers, we will be priests forever. We will serve God forever. But there's that question, well, wait a minute. If I'm serving God forever, am I doing it today? Or am I letting the peer pressure at school kind of uh, put a damper on my Christian faith? Am I being quiet at work or in the neighborhood because I just don't want people to, you know, think of me as that Christian guy, right? Am I laughing at those jokes because I just don't want to stand out. You know, I'm, I'm serving today, but I'm serving myself. I'm not serving the Lord. This picture of this glorious future has a couple of purposes. First of all, it, it, it shows, this millennial kingdom shows the vindication of the church. So it's okay if we lose today because Jesus's victory will be manifest and all those who gave their lives, they will seem to be victorious with Christ. Secondly, it asserts the authority of Jesus on this earth in anticipation of its renewal. So we haven't gotten to the renewal yet of the earth. The new earth, the new heavens, the new Jerusalem, we're getting there. But this is kind of like an in-between step. Well, why? To show that Jesus' reign is valid over this earth. So it's kind of fun to think about the fact that Jesus will have authority over this earth and we will reign with him in that authority. The third purpose, I think, of this kingdom is, is that it shows the fulfillment of God's design for humanity as his image bearers ruling over his creation. Now again, that will bleed into the new earth forever. But the fact is, when we are reigning with Jesus in this kingdom, over this earth that God created, it will be as God intended it to be. The curse has been undone. Satan, his his attempt to derail the plan of God will have been thwarted. It just all begs the question though, will you resist the dragon today? Obviously, it's worth it in the end because you want to be experiencing the joy of this kingdom. You want to be reigning with Jesus. You want to be the person that's described in Daniel 7 and in Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 6. You want to be in this number. But the problem is that in the churches in Asia Minor in the first century, there were many gathering with believers who weren't going to be in this number because they weren't resisting the dragon, they weren't willing to pay the cost. Now, listen, realistically speaking, you and I are likely not going to have to give our lives to follow Jesus faithfully in this culture at this time. That may not always be the case, but that's the case today. So given that it's not going to require probably you giving your life, the question is, well, what aren't you giving? Because sadly, we still hesitate to follow. Well, I'm not going to give that extra time. I'm not going to give that extra energy. I'm not going to give those extra dollars. I'm not going to give that extra focus in my life to the Lord. I'm not going to surrender this area to him. I'm going to keep this for myself. And again, that's satanic deception at work in our lives. There's an urgency here to following the lamb today. Resistance to the dragon might be costly, but it's worth it. It might be costly in the short run, but it's worth it. Why? Because Satan's defeat is imminent. It's coming. Watch verse 7 the end of this kingdom. And this is again where the different views kind of converge together and everybody's in in, in kind of complete agreement, I would say, on this. Verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. Remember that was the abyss. And he will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They came up across or on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So here it is. Okay. Satan is released from the abyss. And it's interesting. It says he's released and he goes to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth we had the same phrase in in revelation 7 the four corners of the earth and there you have these angels holding back the winds of the earth and it's it's possibly a reference to kind of this borderline between well this earthly reality and the spiritual realm it's also potentially referenced in another uh, extra biblical work called First Enoch. You don't need the details on that. But just know that it's, it's in this case, it's kind of like that border zone between the earth and the angelic realm or the spiritual realm. So, here, what Satan does is he goes, in, in, coming out of the abyss, what does he do? He brings his demonic army with him. Let's go. And Gog and Magog, that's referenced in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. Those are like uh, stereotypical enemies of God, right? They are gathered together for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. Now, the big question is who's gathered for battle here against the Lord? All right. Remember, we already had the earthly battle with the beast and the false prophet and all the people, remember, and then the, the birds had their feasts. So that was it. Like that was that was really unbelievers. That's that. So apparently what's going on here is Satan is coming out of the abyss. He brings his demonic army with him. And this is apparently the time when the resurrection of unbelievers happens. And they join him in one last rebellion. So you could say this is a demon zombie army rebelling against Jesus for one last time. Okay? And yes, Pops dared me to say demon zombie army in this sermon. So I've just done that. And now he owes me lunch. So praise the Lord. Okay. So, right, right? But it... And in all honesty, what, what are we looking at here? There, some think that no, there will be procreation in the millennial kingdom, and these are uh, the kids of believers who were not were born unbelievers, and they were deceived by Satan. And that's possible. I don't think that's the most natural reading. It says they came up onto the earth, and the CSB translates it a little, it's a little hard to see it there, but it's, they came up onto the earth. Up from where? Up from the abyss! Up from the abyss with Satan. So he leads one last rebellion. We already had the earthly rebellion in chapter 19. Now in chapter 20, we have the spiritual rebellion of all these last kind of forces joining together with Satan to try to undo the work of the Messiah. Now, uh, in an amillennial reading of that, it's just the same battle as chapter 19. It's redescribed. So it's the same thing that's happened in 19, but it's described again. I don't think that's, that's as compelling because in chapter 19, the beast and the false prophet lose out. But we still have the dragon, Satan. And now in chapter 20, now Satan is defeated. So now we have the complete set. And we, that's emphasized there in verse 10 at the end of the battle. Notice there wasn't much of a battle. They gather to try to undo Satan or undo Jesus' authority. And Jesus just rains down fire from heaven. Done. Like you've always wanted him to do. I know you've been at that place where somebody cuts you off on the, on the road. You're like, Lord, rain fire from heaven down on them right now. <laughs> and take them right now, right? Now that's a silly example, but... You know, more soberly, we've all seen wrongs done where we think, man, I wish God would just settle this. Well, on this day, he literally does just rain fire down from heaven, boom, and settle the issue. And notice the conclusion in verse 10. The devil is now cast into this lake of fire and sulfur who already have two inmates. The beast and the false prophet are already there because they lost out in chapter 19. So now Satan is thrown in there. He's added in with them. And they will suffer the judgment of God for their rebellion against him forever. That's significant because as Satan leads this rebellion, and potentially leading the resurrected unbelievers in rebellion, what is he doing? He's leading all those who are deceived by him in that act of saying no to the Lord. Even in death, even as demons have already tasted of their defeat, and they know that they can't win, they still refuse to submit to Jesus. They still rebel With Satan at the end. And they lose. His kingdom is coming. And make no mistake. Those who rebel against the lamb. Will be defeated by the lamb. Those who rebel against the lamb. Will be defeated by the lamb. In Genesis 3. We have the promise of this. In that first mention of the gospel. In Genesis 3.15. Where the Lord says. To Eve, that one of her descendants will crush the head of the serpent? This is that day where Satan is finally defeated. And that defeat is decisive and it is eternal. You know, as we were singing in encouragement and just reading 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about the resurrection, there's resurrection for believers to life and to victory, and death loses, and sin, because it's associated with death, loses, and evil loses. So there's no victory for death and sin. Why? Because Satan and evil and death have been defeated. The question is, where do we stand? This hope, this hope of Jesus' victory over Satan, it gives us hope in the midst of hardship. Right? It gives us hope in the midst of hardship. It also gives us a warning in the face of temptation. Lest you think there's nothing riding on that, there is. And it gives us urgency in our mission. Think about that for a minute. We're we're in this period of history where the kingdom of God is still growing. So we have the opportunity not only to say no to Satan's temptation, but to actually be used by God to bring people out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. We have this opportunity to be servants of the Lord, to have a conversation with a family member or a friend or a coworker, or a, a classmate and to be able to say, you know what, that's not the only way to read this situation, that there's another option. And the fact is that God created us, and God loves us. And rather than rebel against him, he's called us to trust him and to live for him. And he loves us so much that Jesus took on flesh, died on the cross and rose from the dead. So that we could be a part of his kingdom rather than face judgment. You see, there's an urgency to our mission in light of this imminent defeat of Satan. The Messiah will crush the head of the serpent. The fact is, it's going to happen. And it's not only the defeat of Satan, but it leads then to the judgment of the world. Watch verse 11. Still in the same vision, then I saw what? A great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is it. So this is the, it's not described, but the second resurrection has happened. It's the resurrection of unbelievers. And then all of humanity is gathered before the throne of God. And what happens? The books are opened. What are the books? The books that detail the decisions that we've made in our lives. Some of us have had this nightmare where all of our failures are played on a massive video screen at the judgment, right? It's not that they're all known publicly, but you can be sure. You can be sure that God knows every single deep, dark secret in your life. All the stuff you've did, stuff you've done that that you shouldn't have done, all the things you've said that you know you shouldn't have said, man, all the things that you wanted to say that you didn't say, all those attitudes in your heart, and all that stuff is written in these books. So those books are open, and that is a scary thought. Because if we go to stand before the throne of God on that day, and all the books are written, there's not one person alive who can say with their book, Lord, let me show you my book. And let me show you why I am worthy to be called righteous and to be welcomed into your kingdom forever. Lord, let me just show you in my book. Because the the moment you read something that you did that was righteous and good in your book, you're going to read about your, your next failure right after it. And maybe even your motivation for doing what was right wasn't totally pure at the end of the day. And all that stuff's in there. And you're going to be going, wait a minute, hold on. There's got to be more here. But on the balance, because of sin, if we just open those books before the Lord and he reads them as a fair and righteous judge, he must say, no, you deserve judgment. But those aren't the only books that are opened. Did you catch it? Another book was opened, we find in verse 12. The book of life. The Lamb's book of life. What's in this book? Well, you know what's in this book? It's just a bunch of names. Names of who? The names of the people who have trusted in the Lamb for the forgiveness of their sins. You could look at this book. It has all your life decisions in it. You could see all the failures. You could see all the reasons that you shouldn't get in. Well, what you'd also see in that book are all the reasons that Jesus had to come for you. And all those failures in there are the reasons why Jesus is known as the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so on that day of judgment, yes, your book will be there and it'll be opened. And we don't know the exact order, but one way or another, that book is opened, the Lamb's book of life is opened, and they say, hold on a second, before we get to all that, let's just, oh, they're covered. Their failures have been covered by the blood of the Lamb. And those whose names are found in the Lamb's book of life, they are welcomed. They are accepted. But, verse 15, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. With Satan, with the beast, with the false prophet. For eternal judgment. Sometimes people have this idea it was uh, popularized with bad rock music in the 80s that, uh, that hell is an eternal party and Satan is the one throwing it. And it's this raging kegger forever. man, you want to be a, you know, like that deal, right? Like, how cool is it, Satan party forever? Yeah. I, again, I think that's a satanic attempt to undermine the seriousness of eternal judgment. But the fact is, Satan is not in charge of the lake of fire, Satan is an inmate. He's there facing judgment for his rebellion against God, just like the beast, just like the false prophet, and just like everyone whose name is not found written in the book of life. His kingdom is coming. And with his kingdom comes his perfect judgment. This is not the last warning in Revelation, but this might be the climactic moment in warning. And yes, when when God judges the heaven and the earth, they'll, they'll run away is the language here. The idea is that now starts the process of God renewing creation. And we're going to see this new creation next week in chapter 21 as we continue to move on in the vision. But right here, what we need to focus on is on the fact that when his kingdom comes in its fullness and in its completion, his perfect judgment comes. And that means there's a warning to all to say, hold on a second. You need to make sure that your name is in the Lamb's book of life. You you need to make sure that you're not hoping to stand before God at the great white throne and say, let me commend myself to you for the dollars that I gave to charitable causes and for my church attendance record and for how many sermons of Pastor Ryan I endured, right? Like those are like these badges of honor, right? That you could say, I did all these good deeds. No, nothing in those books is going to get you in. It's only your faith in the Lamb. Now, When we start talking about eternal judgment, immediately there's going to be pushback in our culture from this idea that that sinners should be judged at all, and certainly that sinners should be judged forever. And we've touched on this a bit in our series in Revelation, but I just want to remind you of a couple of reasons why it is glorifying to God that sinners are judged forever. The first is this, unpunished evil detracts from God's glory. E Evil rebellion that goes unpunished, and not with what we decide the punishment should be, but with what God decides the punishment should be, right? Evil that goes unpunished detracts from God's glory. That, that point's made in actually in Revela- excuse me, in Romans chapter nine, very clearly, amongst other places. But God is glorified by judging evil. So that, that in general, is a good thing that our culture doesn't really accept the idea that, that God would judge evil. But secondly, you've got to remember that God's judgment is perfect. It's righteous. He is the righteous judge, which means acknowledging we are not righteous judges. Right? So we have to just embrace this idea that, that in, because of our sin, because of our limited perspective, we don't always see it rightly. In fact, we rarely see it rightly. But God does. And so it's really important that he's the one sitting on that, that judgment seat. And not you and not me. I know uh, so often, you know, I give Batman a hard time, um, and rightly so. Batman's the worst. You, you remember Batman? You remember Batman? I don't know if anybody even knows who Batman is. It, listen, Batman is a, is, a, is a human man who takes justice into his own hands. And if you, if you watch the, the Batman movies or read the comics, you know, clearly, he never really solves the problem. Like, you get to the end of those stories, and it's never resolved. It's never actually dealt with. The whole thing, there's never a happy ending. And spoiler alert, there's no happy endings in Batman. Why? Because he can't, he cannot accomplish what he's trying to accomplish. He cannot, as a human man, he cannot influence and impose justice on this earth. But there is one who can. And he's the one sitting on that throne. His judgment is righteous. Luke chapter 12 makes that point for us. You know, God's judgment is righteous, just let him judge. But what about the eternal component? Well, I think we have a hint here in this last satanic rebellion, but the fact is, we have no biblical reason to believe that people will cease to rebel against Jesus once they've died. In fact, we have some evidence to the contrary. That their rebellion against Jesus continues. Their rebellion against the Lord continues even after their death, even after the resurrection. And so, because of that, that's one reason out of many others that we don't know, but that's one reason for sure that we can trust God that the lake of fire is a place of eternal judgment. Now, it's not a pleasant topic to be sure, but once again, it's an important topic because it's, an, it's a crucial element to our saying no to temptation, and also to our urgency in seeking to make and mature disciples of Jesus. It is not popular. But people need to know that you're going to face judgment by God. And while I might be willing to cut you some slack, he's the perfect judge. And when those books are open, do you really think that he's going to do that? But when we give this message that God's judgment against unbelievers is eternal along with Satan and the beast and the false prophet and all the rest, right? That when we give that message, we're not saying God doesn't love you. We're saying, actually, God does love you. And he has made a way for you to not be judged for eternity, but to instead to experience eternal life. Because that eternal life is a gift from God through faith in Jesus. And so we give this message, right? We bring this message to the nations and we say, repent and believe. And if you're here today, you're not a follower of Jesus, yes, there's a warning here. There's a warning that without repentance, and without your name being found in the book of life, you will be judged. And I would encourage you just to soberly consider what's in your book when those books are opened. But also soberly consider God's love for you, which is seen most clearly in Jesus, who died for your sins and rose from the dead. The way to get into heaven is not to earn it, to achieve it, to clean yourself up and work for it. The way to experience this eternal life with the Lord is to say, I could never do it, but I'll trust in Jesus who's done it for me. That's how your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. His kingdom is coming. Now, for those of us who are believers, his kingdom is coming, and there is a facet to his kingdom that is a reality now. That is true in our lives. But the fact is that we look forward to this ultimate day, the day of Satan's defeat, the day of the judgment of the world, the day of that final day when we are raised to life with Christ. And so because we look forward to that, there's an urgency not only to spreading the gospel, but to living the gospel today. And this isn't new. The church in every generation needs this message. My friend John Owen back in the 1770s pastoring in England. Remember, he, he wrote about this. He actually wrote a song about it in light of even this, this very passage of Scripture, Revelation 20. But he catches in this song, I think, the, the takeaway for us. And just I'll read it for you, but then I'll, I'll talk about it for a minute. But this is his, his poem or his song about Revelation 20. He says, John in a vision saw the day when the judge will hasten down. Heaven and earth shall flee away from the terror of his frown. Dead and living, small and great, raised from the earth and sea. At his bar shall hear their fate. What will become of me? Now my soul knows what to do. Thus I shall with boldness stand, numbered with the faithful few. Saved at thy right hand. See, Newton, he knew. He knew. Thinking about that day of judgment, where will I stand? Then he he knew. He said, ah, I know what I need to do. I need to stand boldly with the faithful few today. That's what I need to do. Not to earn acceptance into his kingdom, but because that's what kingdom people do. They are the faithful few. The question you have to ask today is, am I? one of those faithful few. His kingdom is coming. Are you ready? Would you pray with me we'll ask God to help us? Lord, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for this this glorious picture, Lord, of your kingdom coming and the ultimate defeat of Satan. And Lord, even as we recognize differences in how some of the details uh, will pan out, we we see that there's clarity to the point here and there's clarity in the conclusion of this vision. That your reign will become a reality on this earth. That Satan will be decisively judged forever. There will be a day of judgment where everyone will answer to you. And Lord, we praise you that there is another book opened on that day. That it's not just the books or the records of what we've done, but Lord, that the book of life has opened on that day. And we thank you that by faith in Jesus, we we can be recorded in that book. But Lord, I, I pray that we would sense the urgency in saying no to Satan's temptations today. That we would see the urgency in spreading the gospel. That we would see the urgency in standing with the faithful few. And even in our culture, Lord, which Uh, In many ways, it gives us wonderful freedom to practice our Christian faith, but also, Lord, in other ways, daily undermines our Christian faith. So we ask for help, Lord. We ask that you would equip us to say no to that temptation, to say no to the idols of our age, to walk by faith. And Lord, we pray that we would do so because of confidence in this day that is coming. Lord, we pray that you would help us, help us, to be ready, even today. And we pray that we would be your, your servants and your priests, even now, spreading this good news for others to hear. And Lord, we thank you that Satan will not win. Please sustain us and help us persevere in the meantime, we pray, in your name, Lord Jesus, amen.